Good afternoon, my friends. Happy Wednesday. Welcome back to another episode of To Your Health with Dr. G. Oh my gosh, today's show is going to be on fire. We're talking today about overcoming phobias, and I cannot wait. This is the perfect time for everything. Halloween's right around the corner, but we're going to be serious today. And of course, my panel is fierce. Welcome back to another episode today on this great Wednesday, overcoming phobias. We're going to break that down for you. And I think people can definitely resonate to that topic. But we're going to break it down from certainly a medical standpoint, a lifestyle standpoint, behavioral health standpoint. But again, at the end of the day, we want you at home to do well with your health. When you have success with your health, you're gonna have more opportunities for success in your life. Again, my name is Dr. Mark Gomez. I'm a board certified internal medicine physician practicing out at Edward Hospital in Naperville. I'm also a member of the American Board of Lifestyle Medicine. Check me out on my website, www.drmarkgomez.com. We're here live on Facebook. We're broadcasting at Intellectual Radio Studios as well. I'm so excited. My panel today, I've got some favorites back. Again, my, my panel today, they are veterans. They're not rookies, but they're just great at what they do. And I can't wait for you guys to hear their story and their message. That's why I like them so much. And so, but we're going to bring it down today. Again, Halloween coming around the corner. You know what I'm going to do for Halloween? I'm going to dress up as, as Harry Potter. It's all good. And my son is going to be Spider-Man and my daughter is going to be uh, something from Disney's The Descendants. And my wife is going to be Harry Potter as well, too. Uh, so we're going to have a lot of fun. Gryffindor rules. So I'm so excited to have everybody back here today. But we want to be serious today. We want to, at the end of the day, we want you guys to have the right information. That's why I have a great panel. People that care about your health and your well-being and want you to take things seriously. But also make sure that you're enjoying the more important things. Never lose sight of that broader perspective of life. Your health is just part of that journey, but it's the life. And I want you guys to remember that we are all here to help you to get to those goals again. And, and from a medical standpoint, nothing is off limits. We want people to be comfortable seeing their practitioners to talk about anything that's going on so it can help you live your best life. Of course, before we meet my panel, I always hit you guys with a great disclaimer. Here we go. The content of To Your Health with Dr. G is for information or entertainment purposes only, and that the content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Further details can be found at www.toyourhealthwithdrg.com slash disclaimer. All right, so phobias, something we can all talk about. And again, there's phobias when we talk about fears, but there's certainly a clinical diagnosis of phobias. And we're going to get into that as well to talk about some of the differences. But I have a new segment that I'm going to unveil later on today. I'm not going to tell you right now. Of course, always on the show, we break down myths versus facts towards the end. So stay with us. The best thing you guys can do today is share this show. This message has to be part of the daily conversation. We want all health to be part of the daily conversation. Again, what we talk about today does not end today. Spread that message and help out. Help continue in this journey. So it's great today. So I want to introduce my guests. Those of you that are new to the show, what I do each week is I welcome a panel of experts. We center ourselves, center the discussion around a particular topic today, overcoming phobias, fears, and then we're going to talk about it. And at the end of the day, you know, we're going to hear some great perspective from my guests and everything. But again, we want you guys to keep this conversation going. Uh, I'll make sure you have everybody's information to, so you guys can contact your specialists. But again, remember, there's no such thing as <clears throat> there's no such thing as you know uh, as um, what's that phrase uh, uh, when you have don't uh, the wolf uh, the no such thing as crying wolf I knew I was gonna get it one of these days 
It is what it is. I'm having a little word fumbling today, but that's all right. No such thing as crying wolf when it comes to your health. We want you guys to do well. And again, it takes a village to get to your health goals. So it's going to be great today, overcoming phobias. So what I want to do is I want to introduce my guests today. They, I know them both very dearly, great friends and colleagues, and really at the top of their games with everything that they do about health. So I want to welcome back my guests to the show. My first guest, I want to introduce you, introduce you to him. His credentials run deep. So I got to read this. Dr. Tom DiMatteo, he's a board-certified adult and child and adolescent psychiatrist, founder and owner of Wellspring Clinical Associates. Check him out at www.wca-il.com. Dr. DiMatteo, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me oh, back. Welcome there, back to the show, my friend. Hey, it's great having you here. Why don't we uh, just tell us a little bit about your background. Where did you go to medical school? Sure. Where did you do your residency? Just to kind of establish your credentials and everything. Absolutely. Thanks for having me back. Hey, you bet, my friend. So, uh, pharmacy school, doctorate in pharmacy first. Ah, I do remember you told me that the last time, yes. Right, which comes into play with medicine, medications, True. which we'll talk about in a moment. Uh, medical degree, also University of Arizona. General Psychiatry Residency, University of New Mexico. Child Psychiatry Fellowship, University of Chicago. Excellent. I've been practiced just about 20 years now. Oh, wow. Well, congratulations on that yeah. milestone and everything. Why don't you give us a few opening words, you know, about today's theme, you know, why is this theme kind of important that we're having this discussion today? Absolutely. So, phobias are a type of anxiety, and anxiety is very common. In any given year, about 20% of the population is going to have a clinical diagnosis or diagnosable anxiety disorder, and in adolescents, it's about 30%. Incidence is higher in females than it is in males maybe about 10% in each category. Uh, very impairing for many people. Uh, and phobias are just one aspect of anxiety that we treat in mental health. Uh, it can cause a lot of problems with work, can cause a lot of problems with school, with performance, can lead to increased risk for things like depression, substance abuse, uh, and any number of different social problems. Excellent. Well, thank you, Dr. DiMatteo. Again, you're talking about the real effects, the, the psychological as well as physiological stuff that we'll get into as well from anxiety disorders in general, but certainly in today's theme of phobias. So thank you again for coming out today. Absolutely. And I want to welcome my next guest. She has been on Tear Up with Dr. G multiple times. I like her a lot. That's why I put her on. We work together. So her office is right down the hall from my office. So it's just great to have just such a great collegiality because we can bounce ideas off each other. If I'm thinking of something, I can say, all right, well, well, well Katie, what's your, think, what's your take on this? And vice versa, which is just an awesome thing. It's really helped me develop more as an internist, as a clinician, to just be better um, able to help offer solutions or best, at the minimum, resources to my patients. So I want to welcome my next guest. She's been on the show before. Let me introduce you to, introduce you to her. Her credentials run deep as well. That's all my guests. All their credentials always run deep. Here we go. I want to introduce Katie O'Donnell. Welcome back to the show. She's an LCSWCADC, licensed clinical social worker and certified alcohol and drug counselor with Linden Oaks Medical Group. Check her out, www.eehealth.org. Katie, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me again. It's a pleasure. I'm so excited to connect again with you today. It's this always is a awesome. good time. Well, even more since I've been out of the office. I know. For a little we while. missed you. <laughs> I, know. I know. I miss our conversations and everything. So I'm so glad that we can talk about it today on, on the show and really broadcast a, a larger message. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about your background. What did you do your schooling? And a few words about what does this theme today of phobias mean to you? Yeah, so I got my master's degree in social work from Loyola. Loyola. Um, right here in Chicago. And I did one of my um, 
uh, internships at Alexine Brothers Behavioral Health Hospital in the substance use disorder population, another in a community in Brookfield called Community Support Services, who worked with um, individuals with developmental disabilities. And I've been with Edward now for many years, kind of just, I, I would say it's almost like the uh, internal medicine of behavioral health. I kind of see it all. Yeah, so it. working in the primary care, I definitely see a lot of anxiety as well. I think right on with, you know, it's the number one thing that I see with patients and phobias are a part of that. And I think even more than anxiety, phobias are something that people are more kind of scared to talk about, ironically, because some of them can be so random or seem so odd or any of those stigmas that we attach to them. And one of the big things about anxiety and with phobias is it's very uncomfortable to sit with it. So I see a lot of avoidance over years and years and years. And then eventually, like our body and our mind, our mind just can't take that anymore. So definitely want to add some education and kind of take away some of that stigma today. Wonderful. And I love how you use the word stigma because it's true. There's certainly still much of a stigma out there. And uh, both uh, Dr. Damadio and Katie have been on my show in the past. We actually did a series together uh, on hashtag in the stigma to really create more awareness and just more uh, discussion and opportunity centered around mental health. And certainly I'm so glad we're talking about it today because it's such a hot button issue that we have to talk about this kind of stuff. So thank you both. So how the show works, you just met my guests and everything. What I do is I have a chief complaint, AKA the question of the hour. Uh, the chief complaint is when somebody comes into your office and they have a particular reason for being there. So the chief complaint today, of course, is when is treatment necessary for phobias and what options are available? You know, the reality is both our guests just said that phobias are long-lasting. They can cause intense physical and psychological reactions and can affect our ability to function normally, whether at work or at school or in other aspects of your life. So it's important that we talk about it, hashtag in the stigma, and really talk about practical solutions. So it's just great to have you both here on. So here we go. Dr. Tom, let me ask you this question. Um, when it comes to phobia, if we, had to, if we had to like just simplify the word phobia, how would you just kind of simplify what that means to people? Sure. It's a specific encapsulated fear. Fear. All right. There Straight up. Yeah. All right. And, Pretty and, simple. And would you say like phobia is irrational in that sense of, 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 of a perceived threat or danger that may not necessarily be there? So that's a little bit tricky. I'm going to okay. qualify it. All right. Please do. Okay. Usually, fears come out of some rational space, but they can be blown out of proportion. They can come to a point where you're not functioning, and that was a word you were using earlier. It's important that we recognize that treatment is about living your best life. Yes. I think that's your phrase. That's my phrase. I love it. And yeah. it's important that we recognize that when we're not functioning well, we're not living our best life. And so whether it be anxiety or a phobia specifically, if it's interfering with somebody's ability to function, that's a very good indication that it's time to do some treatment. Mm -hmm. well, let me ask this question to you, Katie. Like, when does somebody get to that point when you say, you know, to, to piggyback on what Dr. Tomato said, how will somebody, like, is it more just functioning in just the day-to-day, -day, or is it really person-specific in their functioning that they, that they say, you know what, I really may have a phobia, a legitimate phobia that needs to get worked up? Um, I think, again, 
you know, going forward with what Tom was saying, very subjective. So for some people, their day-to-day could be, okay, I avoid an elevator anywhere I go, and so I take an extra 10 minutes out of my day. For some people, I've seen it to the point where they don't leave their house. They don't leave a certain room of their house because of agoraphobia, which is a fear of wide open spaces, being outside and outdoors around people. So someone could on the surface, and this is true for all mental health, seem like they're very much functioning. And they are really struggling with some very deep anxiety, some very real phobias, and they're able to have that mask on. Now, how long that mask can stay, that's another question. Eventually, if it left untreated, it really can get to the point where maybe someone does kind of outside of their voluntary like decision-making need to be hospitalized or kind of family intervene. So again, it's very subjective what someone would say, hey, this is me functioning versus this is re- me really not functioning and what that looks like. Well, you know, Tom, how do you, how do you kind of think of it this way? Like say I'm somebody at home and maybe I have, you know, I'm a spouse and my, my spouse may have a particular phobia and, and me as a spouse, I kind of really noticed that, hey, this may be impacting certain aspects of life. How do you kind of, how do you kind of have that conversation with that person, your loved one or a friend or a relative, uh, without being so judgmental and labeling and maybe shutting them down even more? How do you get people to maybe open up and really realize that they do have something? Because I always feel like you gotta be introspective, uh, but, but at times it's hard to really come to grips with that you really have a legitimate issue going on. Right, so Katie, I think you used an important word earlier and that's avoidance. I think one of the really common things that happens with anxiety is we avoid. We tend to avoid things that we're not fond of or that we don't see as positive. The problem is, is that can creep into our lives. And I think when it comes time to have that conversation, it's good to be motivational with someone and say, well, how does that, how does that work for you? you know, what is it that um, you get by avoiding this? And what you get is avoidance of pain, avoidance of fear. Uh, fear is normal. It's natural and it's even good in many ways. But when it gets out of control, it becomes a very uh, dangerous taskmaster and it can really control your life. And so I think the conversation can be one that centers around how does it work for you and how does it cause you problems, much the way you might talk to an alcoholic. Absolutely. What do you think about, like, well, I think about me, I have a fear of spiders, everybody. It's all good. Uh, arachnophobia, love that word. Uh, but I have a fear of spiders, but it doesn't, you know, if I see a spider, yeah, I mean, if we see a little spider around the house, maybe we got to kill it kind of thing. But, but I don't put myself in situations where anytime I'm like when I go to the zoo, I'm going to hang out in the spider exhibit. I can still function in my life if I see a little spider there. But, but, it, but how do you draw the line? I'm going to ask this question to Katie. How do you draw the line between someone who just, just avoids and doesn't have anything to do with their life at all, doesn't affect their quality of living, all that kind of stuff, versus someone when it truly impacts a phobia, truly impacts their living? Well, that's a good question because some people can have a phobia like that arachnophobia that doesn't really impact their life because you know you don't work at Brookfield Zoo and you're not a spider handler. Exactly. If your passion was to work with the arachnid population, it might interfere a little bit. So it kind of comes back to me um, to values. So if you have values and these phobias are taking you away from those values, whether it's social relationships, whether it's um, being able to travel or have experiences, whether it's even your health. I see so many people 
people who have these fears of going to the doctor's office, of needles, of blood, which are some of the most common in, in medicine. And so they have illnesses or they don't get to have experiences or their health really deteriorates or relationships deteriorate because of that. So that's kind of the fine line. If you're still able to go to work, you see a spider, and I know what our office looks like. In <laughs> yes, we've seen a little spiders in office. we got to work on that. But you still come to work every day, and you don't go running, screaming out of the room if you're with someone and you see a spider. So that's kind of where some people who have a phobia that does really impact their life are very real possibilities. Dr. Tom, is there, is there a difference between a phobia and, like, obsessive-compulsive disorders? Or is there a fine line that maybe the one might blend into the other? I think about people that might have a phobia that we're just going to make up a situation, but I, I left my light on in my house, and I leave my car, I leave my house, I go in my car, and then I come back and just check it again, and then I'm like, okay, I keep coming back. Um, is there like a fine line between like phobias and OCD? There's a line. Uh, many times they can occur together, but there's some common underpinnings or foundations between the two. And that real common underpinning is fear. And so again, fear is adaptive and functional. Back a thousand years ago, fear kept people alive. Uh, if you were afraid of being eaten by a saber-toothed tiger, you probably were much more alert and less likely to be eaten. But there are no saber-toothed tigers today. <laughs> and the problem is some of the vestiges of evolution remain. And uh, despite the fact that we've evolved into a very safe society by and large, these underpinnings and biological um, tendencies... Uh, remain and that is the genesis for both OCD and phobias. Uh, obsessive compulsive disorder tends to be a much more pervasive problem, tends to because sometimes phobias can be uh, very debilitating, but uh, obsessive compulsive disorder often relates to a fear that something bad will happen if some particular compulsion isn't carried out. If I don't wash my hands, I'm going to get a germ, I'm going to get sick, I'm going to die. If I don't keep the door closed, a burglar is going to come in and get me. And so there's, there's a sense of a fear there, of a phobia, of course. but then there's a lot of behavior that comes beyond that. Very well. You know, the national, you were talking earlier, uh, uh, Tom, about the, the, the prevalence of phobias, uh, you know, millions of people, tens of millions of people, let's put it that way, more women than men. Um, you know, why don't you guys both just tell us about, I mean, are you seeing, you know, if you're seeing phobias in your practice, um, what, what kind of things are you seeing up there? I'll start with you, Katie. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I kind of mentioned a few just because we're in a primary care office that there is a lot related to needles, to blood, um, to things like that. So that's very specific and things that maybe would prevent people from coming in. Um, I would also say just in general, the big ones I see are um, airplanes. Um, and then enclosed spaces, we were kind of talking before a little bit about that, getting an MRI, things like that. I also have some very very specific ones where a patient who came in and due to a traumatic experience in their childhood cannot go through their front door. So that is very specific in terms of a phobia and it's something that we're really working on and it has had a huge impact on their life, their functioning, their relationships. So sometimes it can be, okay, airplane something very general and sometimes it can be something that's very specified. Um, but 
I'm trying to think. Yeah, agoraphobia. Yeah. That's probably the other big one too. What about you, Tom? What kind so, of things are you seeing? Yeah, sort of qualify it a little bit, please. Um, if you don't ask, they won't tell. Mm -hmm. That's true. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I think it's it can be a bit of a tip of the iceberg thing. Uh, but panic disorder with agoraphobia is, is very common. And a lot of that has to do with a fear of having a panic attack in public and looking foolish because of that, which is somewhat related to one of the other ones that I see very commonly, and that's social phobia, social anxiety disorder. There are some studies to suggest that's tied to depression, but it's important to know that anxiety and depression is very common uh, they're very common traveling partners, so to speak. They're very often comorbid, the two. But social uh, social phobia, especially school refusal, is uh, a big part of what I see in my practice. So you see, so you see definitely at a younger age, is there like a typical age range where, where people may start with these social phobias? Is it like your early teens, the preteen kind of uh, age group? I would say preteens for sure, and, and definitely into teenage years. As your awareness of social interactions emerges, it tends to get worse. Uh, so in the second and third decade of life, you'll definitely see uh, these uh, problems declare more often. So when phobia, and I'll ask this question, okay, so when phobias really happen, I mean, do we know if, you know, we, we talked about a little bit about life experiences, so that can be a trigger, the catalyst for, for a lot of different things, but do we know if there's a role with genetics? Do we know if there's other environmental factors that come into play? Uh, do we know anything else about phobias? Do we know cultural factors, you know, and from one culture to the next culture? Do we do we know anything else that's contributing to this outside of life experiences? Absolutely, and that big nature versus nurture with phobias is a huge component. And I would say that there is a prevalence for at least family members, primary family members who have a phobia for their children from other family members to also have a phobia and sometimes the same phobia. So how much of that is the genetic component? How much of that is just kind of observing? So if mom's afraid of driving, uh, okay, this is something that my brain is telling me now is, is a scary thing, which can kind of develop that. So I firmly believe there's that genetic component. And then I'd say the other half is rooted in trauma. So I've seen it both where you've been on a flight, you've flown your whole life, and all of a sudden you have a really rough, nasty flight. For some reason, that's the one where suddenly flying is very difficult. I think I had a patient of yours who had that experience. <laughs> I'm that sure you had. Um, so it, it can be both the nature and the nurture that kind of comes into play there. So I really like to stress that genetics can be a huge, important piece, and sometimes family don't don't know, and I say this is where their cultural piece comes in, I see a lot of African-American communities, Hispanic communities, that they don't talk about it. Yeah, so they don't know their family. General, yeah. Yeah. They don't know what that yeah. family history is. And kind of like what Tom said, if you don't ask, people aren't going to tell. And so even further, if you're not talking to your family members or if they haven't like kind of given that information, we just have no way of knowing. I've had those patients in my practice, and I think a lot of people may, may relate, but you have somebody who may be younger, may skew female, may have panic attacks and uh, agoraphobia and certainly wants to come in and see me as an internist uh, to make sure everything else is done. What else is causing my phobia? You know, is it my heart? Is it my heart? Is it my heart? It always comes down to that. So then the, somebody gets the quote-unquote million-dollar workup, you know, stress tests, EKG, labs, all this kind of stuff, and everything comes back normal. And then the person might say, well, there's something wrong with me. And, 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 and from an internal medicine perspective, I guess I, I try to give reassurance and say, hey, you know, your heart's good. You know, there's not any metabolic disruption that's going on. 
But yet, when you try to confront somebody, some one of the challenges that I see is when you say, you know, it might be actually you have a legitimate phobia, and then all of a sudden that person may close down and not really admit that they may have phobia. What's what's your take on that, Tom? When you see those kind of uh, patients in your practice, right. or even hearing that kind of story that I right. just said, right? So I think that part of that is to get them to understand that we all work on the basis of schemas. We all work on the basis of set ideas that we build on over the course of our life from birth on. Uh, and one of the main ones is, is the world a safe place? And so much of uh, fear and anxiety comes out of that. There can be specific areas like traumas that can make us think, you know what, it's not safe. It's not safe. And that can trigger some of these things. But many uh, people that have phobias are going to have automatic negative thoughts. These are thoughts that if they pay attention to, they can see that they're there, but oftentimes they're what we would call pre-conscious. They're not fully aware that they're thinking this way, but thoughts generate feelings. And those feelings then can result in behaviors. So if I think, you know, the last time I went to Fox Valley Mall, I had a panic attack, and it's in the back of my mind, then I'm going to be thinking, what if I have another panic attack? No, you're not going there. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm going to make a fool of myself. I'm going to be crying and screaming and wailing and people are going to say, look at that crazy guy over there. So I think I'll just skip going. I don't really, there's always Amazon. I'll do, I'll do online shopping at Amazon.com. Yeah, but you're right. But, and how do we get people, the challenge is how do we as clinicians get people to acknowledge and then hopefully do something about it? You know, I think that's, that's a hard thing for me as an internal medicine doc. Uh, uh, and of course, when I want to get somebody over to you guys, you know, I might get met with, no, you know, no, I don't do that kind of thing. And I'm like, you know, what are you talking about? Like, if you had diabetes, I get you over to an endocrinologist. If you have uh, heart, heart disease, I get you over to a cardiologist. But you know, when I say something related to mental health or anxiety disorders, and they'll say, no, 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 doctor, I don't do that kind of thing. And that's, uh, that can be kind of frustrating, certainly, when you know there are treatment strategies out there for people to take advantage of. Let me ask you guys this question. Let's talk about a little bit about some of the, uh, some of the uh, treatments out there. Because I think it's important for people to know that there are resources available. So, Katie, tell us about some of the non-pharmacological approaches. Say somebody's got uh, a diagnosable, uh, diagnosed phobia. What are some of the things that we can do to help get them to better manage their phobias? So, like Tom was saying, it's identifying your thoughts. So my first route is typically um, cognitive behavioral therapy. So I can help people understand what are you thinking and how is that related to your emotions and to your behaviors. So that really looks like a triangle where you can have an emotion that leads to a behavior so automatically that you bypass that thought. And so when we can kind of understand that, we can't always control our emotions but we can choose how we behave in response to them. We can't always control that first thought, but we can control what that second thought is. It's a lot of, it's, it's a lot of grunt work of recording your thoughts and being aware of them and not judging them. So there's so much judgment that's involved when we have these thoughts, when we have phobias, and being able to recognize that without bias, then you can have that opportunity to start changing it. And just like any kind of change, it takes time. I have so many people who come in and they want that automatic, all right, one Boom. session, Remember done, change. Yep. I feel great. And it just doesn't happen that way. Anything that's going to be like long-term success is going to take work and it's going to take time. So cognitive behavioral therapy is where I start. 
once I kind of build a rapport with someone, then I jump into exposure therapy. Okay, can you explain what exposure um, therapy is? So exposure therapy is where we gradually kind of literally expose someone to the thing that is causing the fear. So, for example... <laughs> like someone going through a spider thing. You put like a spider on my arm kind oh, of thing. It's exactly what you think it is. So, no one, I will say this, I've been doing exposure therapy for many years. I've not met one person who enjoys that. And it's not meant to be fun. Um, we can joke about it, and I always tell people I am willing to do it too. So, often I'll do an exposure with a patient because it's not fun. And I have things that cause me discomfort. Um, I've talked before about how making phone calls was something that gave me a lot of anxiety. And so how I kind of challenged that was just calling, 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 calling. The more I do it, it's just your brain just kind of gets bored with it. So with exposure therapy or exposure response prevention therapy, what I'll do is, again, I'll start with values. So you figure out what those core values are and then how the things that you have phobias or anxiety about is taking you away from those values. Then I'll make what's called a hierarchy of fear with someone. So they'll pick one area. So say it is spiders. And what would be the thing that causes the least amount of fear of the spider? Is it talking about it? Is it, you know, just looking at a picture of one over there? Is it, well, what would that look like? And gradually we increase what causes that anxiety over time. So whether it's having a rubber spider in the room, looking at spider pictures on the internet, going to the Brookfield Zoo and looking at the tarantulas. But what's really important to understand about exposure therapy is it's patient-led. I don't decide the exposures. I don't make someone do anything. They are deciding that on their own and at their time. I, I like to say that, you know, I'm the GPS. I'm going to guide. I'm going to offer suggestions. I'm going to gently push, which is why it's so important to have that rapport, that relationship, and trust that what happens in that room, you're going to be safe, even though your brain is saying, I am not safe right now. So at the end of doing an exposure that's completely patient-led, um, I'll do a mindfulness or a valued activity. So maybe that's listening to music. Maybe that's playing a board game. Maybe that's doing a, um, a guided meditation so that we're not just getting y'all worked up and then sending you out that's the door. Because that's yeah. not the goal either. <laughs> well, thanks for explaining that. Yeah. Uh, Tom, why don't you tell us a little bit about some of the pharmacological uh, approaches out there? Absolutely. And right. when do you make that decision to decide? Right. So let me preface that. Please, I'll be a little ahead. circuitous here in right. answering right. that question. You know, we live in an outcome-oriented society, and it's a big problem. And it's a big problem because many people come in expecting a quick fix. One session, get me out of here. Nowhere is that more present when it comes to medication. Uh, doc, can't you just put me on a drug, drug me out of my mind and send me on my way? And really what you're doing there is you're colluding with the person. Okay. You're, you're allowing them and helping them to avoid the problem. And one of the examples I like to give my patients when it comes to outcome versus really what this is is process. Life is process. If we're not changing, we're dead. That's basically when we oh. stop changing. Oh. It's a little stark. It is stark. True. Uh, maybe with Halloween coming up, you know, <laughs> day of the dead, all that stuff. But uh, the example I give people is fast food. I'll say, do you like going to McDonald's? Sure, okay. I like going to McDonald's. Doc. What do you like to get there? Well, I like to get quarter pounder fries and a Coke. Okay. Great. Sounds good. I'm hungry. How long does it take you to get that food? Uh, maybe two, three minutes. Then I'll ask them, how long does it take for that food to get to you? And they look at me with this puzzled look. And I'll say, what is it? Well, it's potatoes, it's bread, and it's meat. It's a cow. That cow 
didn't get to you in five minutes. It needed to be born. I see what you're saying. It needed to grow. It needed to be processed. It's a very long process, but we assume that we can snap our fingers and have things. And our society is built on convenience and it's built on outcome. And that's a problem in this situation especially. We need to get away from the idea of getting better by snapping our fingers. We also need to start with saying, we're okay, even if we're not doing well right now. And so that's where it comes into affirming. So that's the long lead like to it. medicine. I like it. Now, all of that being said, the answer comes in, have you tried the therapy and are you stuck? Okay. Are you still not functioning? Are you having trouble with sleep, with energy, with motivation, with focus? Is it so occupying your time that you can't manage, right? So with OCD, a minimum is an hour a day. Many people that I have with OCD, it's constant. Mm -hmm. Constant thoughts and fears of germs or order or any number of things. And those people definitely benefit from medicine, but they should not do just medicine. Excellent. Well, thank you for laying down a compelling foundation, but it's true. We have to be comfortable talking about this and change our collective mindset of what, we, of what our expectations are. And I think I said at the beginning, we are all here. We want our patients to do well. Um, and really do well in that true sense of the definition and not relying on something. If we have to make that judgment call, then we make that judgment call, but I'm glad that you've laid it out, the importance of looking at other, other therapies right. Right. Uh, to really help people with their problems. And, and along those lines, in order to do well, sometimes we need to do poorly. Mm -hmm. We need to give ourselves permission to do poorly. Mm -hmm. And that's part of what therapy is. It's doing poorly in a setting that's safe, that you can make progress in, and that you can see, I didn't die. Nothing bad happened. And then you do a little less poorly, which gets you toward doing better. And then less and less. I see how it goes. Right. Wonderful. Well, thank you both for explaining this. That's, I love it. Hey, you guys are here listening here live on Facebook. I want to get into a section that I created for the two of my guests today. It's called, we're not getting into myths versus facts yet. That'll happen. But we're getting into something that I call Fix My Phobia. And what it is, is I'm going to say the phobia, and it's interesting looking at the research for the show, it's like, there's some interesting phobias out there, but we're going to play a little hypotheticals. Let's change it up a little bit. So I'm going to say the phobia, and I'm going to explain what it is, and then I want my guests, I'll call them, to kind of give us a, a little coaching session, kind of a brief coaching session. What would you do to coach that person up, whether it's exposure therapy or CBT? We'll leave off the pharmacological on this one, but let's just talk about hypotheticals. So fix my phobia, here it is. On to you off with Dr. G, here we go. We're gonna see how we can coach up someone to better manage their phobia. Here's the phobia. This one's gonna be for Tom. Mysophobia equals fear of dirt due to contamination by bacteria and germs. How would you coach up somebody to better manage mysophobia? So this is uh, probably 80% of people with OCD have hand washing issues and it's related to germs. So mysophobia, is one of the basis of that particular subset of OCD. And you would start again with the latter. You would uh, inv invest them in the therapy. That would be the first thing that would be most important. Okay. Why should you change, right? Why should you let go of this? And kids, one of the things I do often is I get them to personify it. Okay. I get them to externalize the problem. Okay. Anxieties are internal. So in a child, what I'll do is I'll say, let's name it. Let's give this 
misophobia a name. Let's call it something funny. Because when people laugh, that's the opposite yeah, of the fear. Absolutely. They start to have power. We have power over things that we name. So I might say, well, why don't you call it Mr. Boogerhead? <laughs> and then well, what happens is the parents can align with the child and not fight against the child. Is Mr. Boogerhead bugging you? I see that you're avoiding that, that dirt. You walked around that, that spot there. There was no reason to. Uh, so that's one thing that you can do. And you start to have naturalistic exposures there. And then that's where it comes back down to exposure and response prevention. And that term means you expose somebody to something that causes the fear or the phobia, and then you prevent them from doing something. So with this one, for instance, if somebody's afraid of germs or dirt, yeah. you might have them go into a public restroom and touch the floor around the toilet. Ooh, I don't yeah. think any of us would like um, doing that. No. Can I wear some gloves? And you might do uh, that, and then you might go back into your office and, and talk for 10 or 15 minutes. Okay. <laughs> I think we're all getting a little uh, nervous there. Right? I'm getting very nervous. I'm sweating right, a little so that's, bit. So that's, that's, that's a very yeah. real exposure. Now, you'd have to work up to that. That yeah. wouldn't happen Wonderful. day one. No. But that would be an example of an ultimate... All right. Kind of thing. That would be an over. I like this one. Thank you, Tom. Here we go, Katie. This one's for you. I like this one. We can relate to this one. I like this one. Um, I like this one. Here we go. Sinophobia equals fear of dogs. That's a common phobia. What's your? How would you fix my phobia, so to speak? It is a common. That's. I was actually just thinking about this one when we were. I was coming in today. So um, what's so interesting is that if you go into a room, and I love that we use therapy dogs at Edwards, so this is a tough one yes. where I, I'm like, oh, dogs can be such a therapeutic That's tool. So, so if someone comes into a room and they see a dog, their brain is automatically sending that signal that this is danger. They don't know this dog. They don't know anything about it. So regardless of whether it's something that happened in the past or just something that's going on genetically, they're out of there. So... First, it would again be developing, like, what is going on? Where did this come from? Did you have a dog taken away from you as a child? Were you told that dogs are me? Were you scared? Were you bit by a dog? Like, what is the root of this? And help them understand a little bit of the why. So much of anxiety is irrational. And when you can kind of put a name on it a little bit and help kind of normalize it, like, yeah, you were bit on the face by a dog. That's scary. Yeah. So now how can we, kind of like with the spider, really start to set up what, what would work? It's just talking about a dog giving you anxiety. And I like to put numbers on it. So on a scale of 0 to 10, where's your anxiety? What does a 10 out of 10 feel like? Are you starting to have self-injure tendencies? Are you shaking? Are you sweating? Are you having suicidal thoughts? Are you having a panic attack? Once we can identify where on that mood ladder, that anxiety ladder we are, well, where would you be if we look at this picture of a dog? What if I talk about Snoopy? And and then really kind of work our way up through several sessions, and we'll plan each session ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And so the first session might be, hey, we're just talking about dog. Now we're going to look at a video of a dog. Now maybe we're going to go and go to a pet store together. So if exposures, they can be kind of in the room, they can be given as assignments, or they can be something that I do together with a patient, just depending on the resources I have. So again, the patient gets to decide, we're gonna make that gradual climb from, okay, we can't even say the word dog, can we write it out? And where in your anxiety ladder is that? And then how can we plan that exposure? And then afterwards process it, kind of attach it to a value and make sure that or continue to increase that. And I will say too with exposure therapy, sometimes I do the same exposure with someone 
over and over and over and over and over again. Okay. So there's also this idea that I have to go up the ladder, you know, one to ten, and it has to be like this one every time. Sometimes there are ameliorating factors. So sometimes someone comes in and their boyfriend just broke up with them or someone they love just died. Maybe we're not going to do the same exposure we planned because you're vulnerable. So do we still want to try and do it? Because sometimes I have patients that are like, yep, we're doing this. We planned it. And sometimes, can we try a different one that's a little bit less? So I always re leave room for tweaking. So Excellent. Here we go. I like this next one. Here we go. Tom, this one's for you. I like this one. Uh, heliophobia. I'm giving you a challenge. One. Heliophobia equals fear of the sun. <laughs> How then in the world will we coach somebody up to better manage fear of the sun? So I think it's important, uh, Katie, just like you were saying, we always need to start with understanding mm -hmm. where people are coming from. They may be able to say a particular reason why they're afraid of the sun. Maybe they had an experience of getting sun poisoning when they were a child or a bad sunburn. Or somebody dared them to look into the sun for a while and their eyes hurt and they couldn't see for a while. So there may be logic in it. And I think that's the real challenge with anxiety is a lot of times there's truth okay. somewhere buried in the irrationality. The irrationality is maybe degree to which we're afraid. So even that phobia isn't necessarily 100% irrational. And so we need to start there. We need to understand where is it coming from, especially before we just jump to Okay, go outside, yes. let's yeah. go bask no in the sun, and, yeah. no sunblock, and here's a, a, a mirror for you. Yeah. And yourself. here's some skin cancer. Uh, and, and so, so I think if the frame is set right, if the foundation is set right, then the rest of the therapy can follow. And it does um, bear repeating, I think, that process is part of this. Mm -hmm. So Katie, just like you were saying with your last one, where you might repeat an exposure, that's about meeting somebody where they're at okay. and recognizing that they uh, are still processing and they're still engaged in the process, and that's very important. And it's okay to go, go slow. You should go the speed that you should go. Okay, fair enough. And, and, it, oh. and, and it's completely individual, and there should be some dynamic tension between comfort and not allowing... Avoidance. Okay. Mm -hmm. I, I certainly have people that have more severe illnesses that I end up having to push a little harder okay. because it's clear that they're not uh, engaging in the process, right. and that's to their detriment. Thanks, Dr. Tom. Let's do one more of these. I like this one. We're getting into some myth versus facts. I got this one for you, Katie, because it's a Halloween theme. Here we go. I'm totally going to butcher this. Uh, Wiccaphobia equals fear of witches and witchcraft. Oh, there you go. All right. Wiccaphobia. How in the world will we coach somebody up to deal with that? Yeah, this will be a rough time of year to have that I know, particular I, phobia. Next week with everything. So I think it goes back to how much is it interfering with your life. So again, what we talked about with understanding kind of the function, what's underneath it, having that solid baseline and rapport. And for some of these, um, if you are never interacting with a witch or a witch movie or witch picture and it doesn't affect your life, sometimes they'll say, okay, you don't have to go out of your way to like expose yourself to certain things. Like where is the avoidance kind of starting? Where is it interfering with your life? And we're kind of getting another phobia. Um, 
You live in Indiana, are you ever going to go cage diving with sharks? Is it something you ever wanted to do? Maybe it's okay that you don't have to put yourself into that. So if it's something where you're truly believing that there are people who are practicing the Wiccan religion that are doing so to the detriment of maybe your health or safety, or even just seeing, you know, one of those witches that have hit a tree when you drive by, you know, down the street, <laughs> and so you alter your route, that's again where we're kind of just in, kind of assessing what is that level. So exposure therapy really depends on what is its subjective sort of detriment to your life and then how much of it are we maybe taking on some other things and where is this like okay are we working on your anxiety overall and kind of helping you function the way you want to be true with your values and maybe you're not ever going to feel comfortable with witches that's the thing too is you might not ever fully love or even feel less anxious about the things we have phobias with. And I mean, hopefully you're not gonna panic attacks every time. You're not gonna have that same degree of anxiety through exposure because you just kinda get used to it. I still get anxious when I make phone calls and then you do it and it's never as bad as your brain says it's going to be. And that's the important part. We have that fight or flight response where our brain is telling us, oh my gosh, here comes the danger. And we still want that when we're walking down the street and all of a sudden a car comes barreling at us out of nowhere. We don't need that when we're in a therapy session and we're not gonna have that actual danger. So it's kind of finding that deciding line. But if you're driving on a different street because of the witches in someone's front yard, <laughs> then come and see us yes, and please. we'll walk you through it. <laughs> well, thank you guys. Hey, I'm going to publish a list of my favorite phobias uh, on online on social media. So look out for that. I'll come out for you tomorrow on that one. It's going to be great. i got a couple of my favorite ones. All right, I want to get into a section called Myths versus Facts, something we do each week on t with Dr. G. Here's what I do. I say the statement. My panelists say myth or fact. Again, it's all about building trust and delivering truth. We want people to get the right information from credentialed sources and not rely on Dr. Google uh, or Dr. Google's cousin or whatever. We don't want people to rely on the misinformation that's out there. Again, always get your health information from proper sources. So here we go. Both of these, both of my guests are veterans at Myths versus Facts. So here we go. Dr. Tom, myth or fact, phobias are genetic. Yes, please explain. It's true. However, okay, sorry, right. yeah, give one of those too. With <laughs> psychiatric genetics, it's not like mom has brown eyes, dad has brown eyes, so I do. Uh, many genetic underpinnings in mental health have multiple factors that can cause them to be expressed or not expressed. And I think we've done a pretty good job talking about that. If you've had a trauma, if you've had nature versus nurture, or often nature and nurture, both, both coming in, uh, a particular environment may make you more likely to have that genetic uh, underpinning expressed. So the genetics are going to prime the pump and then the environment may flip the switch. All right, thank you. Here we go, Katie, myth or fact. Here's a statement. You are, quote, crazy, end quote, if you have a phobia. Myth. Please explain. Well, I think that just applies in terms of our hashtag and the stigma yes. for all mental hashtag health. Stigma, baby. Yeah. That that idea of crazy is just something that keeps people from getting help that they need, where it's all about brain chemistry, it's all about experiences, it's all about how we're kind of seeing the world, and really there's no true definition of normal. So what one person is experiencing doesn't mean that they're separate and kind of different from everyone else. So the thing with anxiety and depression, and really all mental health, is it tells you you're alone, you're the only one who experiences this, there's something wrong with you, don't get help. 
So the idea of crazy, I mean, I'd say we're all a little bit crazy and we're all a little bit normal. All right. So no such Thank thing. You. Here we go, Dr. Tom. Phobias are just overrated fears. What's your take on that statement? Myth or fact? That would be a myth. Please explain. Phobias are much more than overrated fears. We all have fears. As I said, fears are normal and oftentimes positive and good, even though they don't necessarily feel that way. A phobia is something that causes problems with functioning. It causes difficulty in living your best life. life. Right? Excellent. And, that, and that's the bottom line. Excellent. Thank you. Here we go. We'll do a couple more of these. Katie, I like this one. All right. The success rate of both short and long-term phobia treatment is very high. I'd say that's a fact. Please explain. So it it all depends on putting in that hard work. So if we're just at first doing the short-term identifying, hey, have a phobia. That's a huge part of it. I'd say 50% of the battle is being able to name that something is going on. It, it's proven that if you can name an emotion, you're going to reduce the amount that you feel it instead of trying to avoid it and push it down. So when we have kind of that first short-term intervention to help you figure out how do I cope with a panic attack when one comes on? What do I do in terms of distress tolerance and learn breathing techniques? And then we can start finding what the underpinnings are. What is that long-term to make sure you're really kind of analyzing where that's coming from and then how to kind of have that long-term change? So we can actually change the structure of our brain based on how we change our thoughts. So cognitive behavioral therapy, exposure response prevention, all these different kind of interventions actually do change our brain, just not as quickly sometimes as medication. And sometimes even medication can't change the brain as quickly as we want to, if in the way we want it to. But to piggyback on that, I think Please. the more robust long-term results do come from therapy than over-medicine. Gotcha. Thank you. Here we go. A couple more of these. Dr. Tom, here it is. I like this statement. This, will, this is a good one for you. I like this one. Children automatically develop parental phobias. Define. Auto automatically. <laughs> well, first of all, define parental phobia. All right. A um, phobia that a parent has? Yes, the phobia that a parent has, yes. Well, that would be a myth. Please explain. <laughs> Again, it, the environment is uh, key in this situation. Okay. Just because a parent has a phobia doesn't mean that this child is going to absorb it. Okay. Are they at increased risk? Certainly they are at increased risk, but there's uh, a person's innate temperament. So a, a child may actually have a much steadier temperament than their parents. That's certainly possible. They may be blessed with a genetic lottery win in this situation. So just because the parent has an anxiety doesn't mean that the child will. All right, thank you. Here we go, Katie. I like this one. All right. There's such a thing as a rational phobia. You're giving me like those tricky uh, ones. I am giving you those tricky ones because <laughs> I like you, that's why. I'd say that kind of Tom was talking about this, where phobia itself is not rational, but sometimes what it's based in can be. So our fear of heights is very evolutionary because if we don't have a fear of heights and we're just going rock climbing or not paying attention, um, you know, there is a real danger if you can fall and, and things can happen to you. Same with animals. The reason we fear spiders, snakes is because they were poisonous. That was what was our kind of danger. So there is a root in that. And then we also are in the 21st century where we don't have that same kind of risk. I like to explain it as imaginary lions. So you can have a fear of something and there can be kind of something that's reality based in it. But again, we're more in this room. 
you're creating that line coming in and, and, and making that anxiety. Just because you see a spider doesn't mean it's going to come bite you and that's the end. Just because you get on an airplane doesn't mean it's going to crash. Are you going to let that kind of change the direction of your life because of the fear of it or chance of that maybe happening someday? Wonderful. Well, thank you very much. Again, there it is, Myth versus Facts. So we have about five minutes left, and this has been awesome. First of all, I'm like, where's the time gone? You know, we could be t talking about a whole bunch of other fun things. Maybe there might be a part two. I don't know. But uh, but it's been such a great time talking with you both today. You know, at the beginning of the show, we talked about uh, the chief complaint, why people come in. We're talking about the question of the hour and what are we doing about phobias, what treatment strategies are out there. At the end, when somebody's done with us in our practice, we call it the assessment and plan, and that's when somebody certainly has a diagnosis, they have a treatment plan, and most importantly, a follow-up. So let's bring it on home, guys. we got about five minutes left. Katie, why don't you give us a couple take-home points today for people out there that are listening to us to be successful, to acknowledge uh, phobias, and that they can take action about phobias. A couple words. I think the first with anything is speak up. Say that you have something that you're experiencing and kind of recognize that as practitioners and probably family members want to help. They're not there to judge. So like recognizing that our own judgments can really hold us back. Also, exposures are not fun or comfortable. I will not ever tell you that. I'm sure Tom won't ever tell you that. <laughs> and no one is here to say this is going to be easy. And it's also looking at the outcome. And what are you really losing? And what are you really gaining from doing these behaviors, from continuing to kind of live your life in this way? Um, I'd say also at the end of the day, we all have things that we're afraid of. And that's okay. And it's okay to have that. It's okay to sit with that. And we can be afraid of things and still live a value-driven life and still do the things that we want to do and find ways to live our best life. Excellent. Thank you, Katie. It's been just, just great to hang on the show again. I can't wait for it to do some more collaboration in the future. Dr. Tom, why don't you uh, bring us home a little bit? Give us a few closing arguments, or not closing arguments, but a closing words. Now, we're not arguing nothing here, uh, but a few closing words on this topic of phobias and really to try to end the stigma and really take advantage of seeking treatment if somebody does have, have a true phobia. Absolutely. Please. So to go with assessment and plan, the assessment is there's hope for treatment and improvement with phobias. There's a lot of hope. There's great data out there. There's very good uh, treatments available that work. They're effective. Uh, they're very well known. Uh, and they can work in a reasonably short period of time. The plan is to be courageous about it. To be courageous does not mean to be fearless. To be courageous means to acknowledge your fear and engage the process anyway. And if you do that, you can get better. Excellent. Well, thank you both. And my final words are this. You know, phobias are real. You know, phobias can be extremely distressing. They can certainly impact somebody's quality of life and living their best life. It can be linked to significant impairment in their normal functioning. It can have an impact on your family. But don't be afraid to have that conversation. I always tell people, as I said at the beginning, that I was muffling words, but don't be afraid. There's no such thing as crying wolf when it comes to your health. We want you all to do well with everything that you're doing, whatever your purpose is. Be intentional in that approach. We are here to help you, to guide you, to live your best life, to live out your dreams to the fullest ability possible. So I want to thank my guests today. Oh my gosh, it's been an awesome show. I'm so bad. It's, it's like it's over. I'm like, oh man, I'm going to shed a tear. And there probably is a phobia for that fear of crying. I just don't know what that is. Uh, maybe Dr. Tom, you might know what that is. I don't know. I have no idea. But there's a fear of that. But but uh, but I just want to acknowledge both of you guys today for coming out today. Let me read you their credentials again. They're awesome. You have to check them out. That's the most important thing. So I want to thank you. Thanks to my guests.
Katie O'Donnell, licensed clinical social worker and certified alcohol and drug counselor, Linden Oaks Medical Group. Check her out, www.eehealth.org. My good friend, Dr. Tom DiMatteo, board certified adult and child and adolescent psychiatrist, founder and owner, Wellspring Clinical Associates. Check them out, www.wca-il.com. Hey, you've been listening and watching live here on Facebook at intellectualradio.com. This episode is written by Mark D. Gomez, MD, and Tiffany E.R. Gomez. Producer is Tiffany E.R. Gomez. Music is by the wonderful Mr. Havis. Copyright 2019 by MDG Wellness, LLC, All Rights Reserved. Stay tuned for my next show in two weeks. I'm off next week because of Halloween and everything, but in two weeks we're going to be doing that vaping show the remix. Remember to share this show, share this message for anybody that needs to hear a positive, just a positive knowledge base, a knowing on things that we can do. We have to keep this conversation going on, keep the passion going. I'll check you guys out in two weeks, all right? Peace. <laughs>